Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Lydia Lavelle, a politician and professor of law. Lydia is the first openly lesbian mayor of Carborough, North Carolina, and a professor of law at North Carolina Central University. Her legal research is centered on the effects of anti-discrimination laws on the LGBT population. She talks to us about two very important LGBT rights cases now pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. The court is deciding whether the landmark 1968 civil rights law bars employment discrimination based upon sexual orientation and transgender status. Lydia, the uh, Supreme Court uh, obviously goes into session the first Monday in October, and this session is important for a number of reasons, but certainly it's important to the LGBT community, and there was at least uh, one of the cases, if not more than one case, uh, coming up the first week of oral argument, correct? Uh, there, you know, there were three weeks, actually. The first week of oral argument, they were held um, during two hours. Okay. And so t- talk about why the cases this term are so important. And, you know, people, I think, are aware of the, the former decisions about same-sex marriage and, and other things. But why are these important? So on the first Tuesday of the term which was Tuesday, October 8th, uh, the court heard uh, two sets of cases. And really what these dealt with um, was, was how to apply the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, specifically Title VII, which, which um, applies to employment discrimination. What the court heard were oral arguments as to whether Title VII should apply to uh, persons who are gay or lesbian, and then in a separate argument, with regard to whether uh, Title VII should apply to persons who are transgender. And so there's kind of different arguments for each each group of folks. But it was a really significant day for the court uh, hearing these oral arguments because however the court rules on this will, will affect folks and their places of employment that fall under the statute. In a piece that you wrote, 27 states already have legislation that that protect employment discrimination for the LGBT community? That is correct. 27 states have chosen on a statewide basis to include, uh, along with kind of the more typical classes of persons to cover, 
uh, you know, race, religion, veteran status, and so forth. Uh, but they have chosen to specifically cover persons based on their sexual orientation or even their gender identity or expression. In some states, uh, they have affirmatively stated that uh, their use of gender or sex does cover transgender folks. Nearly half the states already have these statewide protections. And then in the states that don't have statewide protections and pursuant to employment discrimination, many cities in those states under their, their home rule authority have gone forward and have uh, pass such local ordinances. So why would this interpretation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, why, why is that so important then on a federal level if states are already handling it? Well, it's, it's, it's important in the 20-plus in the states that, that don't cover it, you know, which is a significant portion of our, um, you know, of, of the folks that live in our country. Um, I happen to live in one of the two states that actually has a statewide law banning any locality from even passing such a law at the local level. In other words, there's a statewide discrimination law, if you will, that says no local municipality, uh, no local entity can can pass such a non-discrimination act. So for one, it would cover those folks in those 20-plus states. And also, I should make it clear that, you know, Title VII doesn't really apply to the majority of, of small businesses. You know, there are certain parameters. I'm not a Title VII expert. I've kind of learned about it through this through these cases, but there are certain parameters. Employees, you have to have 15 or more employees. Also, you know, there are built-in kind of uh, religious exemptions. If you're a religious entity, you're not subject to Title VII. So even if the court were to rule that Title VII did encompass folks who are gay or lesbian or did encompass folks that are transgender, it still would not apply to, you know, to many, many employees uh, that work really for small businesses. All right. So let's dig a little deeper on this. Title VII, as I understand it, uh, protects discrimination based upon sex, among other things, but uh, based upon sex. What were the arguments both for and against the interpretation of this to include sexual orientation at, under the term sex? The arguments to include sexual orientation under the definition of sex kind of go mainly to two cases that the Supreme Court uh, itself has ruled on uh, in previous years. Um, one is the Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins case, and the second one was a, a case called Oncale versus Sundowner. Uh, it was another another case. But in both of these cases, the court kind of took Title VII and um, expanded it a little bit, despite perhaps some justices uh, saying, you know, we need to look strictly at the words of the act. Title VII, when it was initially passed, was, you know, essentially to uh, make it so that people had a fair field when it came to employment. It was really recognizing this important congressional policy uh, against discriminatory employment practices. And so the court in uh, Price Waterhouse, which that case, I was just, I wanted to, yeah, it was a 1989 case. Uh, the court in Price Waterhouse uh, essentially said that it, it was a sexual stereotyping case. In other words, in that case, we had a, a woman who was just simply a female woman, um, 
and she was trying to be uh, to receive a promotion uh, at Price Waterhouse to partner. And you know the record very clearly revealed that the reason she didn't make partner was simply just the way she presented uh, in a um, in a manner that the folks who were doing the hiring felt was not uh, feminine enough. Um, so that she was a little more uh, aggressive than she needed to be. She acted a little more like one of the guys, and they they kind of on the record denied her promotion. Based on the based on the way that she kind of presented her her kind of sexual demeanor, if you will, and so the uh, United States Supreme Court held that that was not permitted um, under um, you know under this auspice of what we call sexual stereotyping. You know, were it not for the way that, in other words, she them expecting her to conform to what they think is a certain uh, stereotype that she should have conformed to. Where if it were not for that, she would have made partner. So that's one reason uh, that folks argue that um, that persons, based on on both actually your sexual orientation or your sexual identity, your gender identity, um, under just kind of the interpretation of sexual stereotyping, that that is a basis for persons uh, to be covered. Uh, the second case uh, by the United States Supreme Court, which was the Oncal versus Sundowner um, case. And that was actually, uh, that was a case from 1998. And it was actually authored by Justice Antonin Scalia. One of the more conservative members of the court at that time, <laughs> most assuredly. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, it, and in fact, it's, it's kind of interesting because in that case, uh, the court kind of acknowledged a little bit of this, how this Title VII should be broadly constructed, which really doesn't sound like Justice Scalia, right, if you, if you know him um, and, or you know his writings. Uh, but basically, I'm quoting actually from the case, statutory prohibitions often go beyond the principal evil to cover reasonably comparable evils. And it's ultimately the provisions of our laws rather than the principal concerns of our legislators by which we are concerned. And so in that case, we actually had a case of uh, male-on-male sexual harassment, and it was, um, I don't have the facts readily at my at my uh, disposal, no, I, I can't really, re- but I just remember the facts were kind of horrific. And in that case, the court said that there was an actionable male-on-male claim for sexual harassment. Uh, again, expanding Title VII a little bit beyond just the words of, you know, of sex or gender. All right. So, so, so because of those two cases, I mean, those are the arguments... That, uh, that folks who are advocating for, you know, people who are gay, people who are lesbian, people who are transgender, uh, arguing that the extension should be made to include sexual orientation. Um, I, I, I would argue also for a transgender person, it's quite simply just the gender that they are, the sex that they are. I don't even know that the transgender argument needs to go as far as the one for sexual orientation, frankly. Be, because it's it's not defined as biological gender. Correct, correct. It just basically says sex. And so um, if a person, it, it comes down to, you're right, it comes down to, uh, I guess, an implicit understanding, you know, as recognized by, you know, the medical professionals, that, um, you know, you, you could have a, um, a, a means of, of, of changing, you know, of, of, of having been misidentified at birth of your gender or your sex. And so, um, you know, once you affirmatively 
settle on or, or have your, your sex that you were meant to be, your gender you were meant to be, then that's your sex, that's your gender. And that is clearly covered under Title VII. So with the Pricewaterhouse case and with the uh, Onkale versus Sundowner case, it, both of those expanding the definition of Title VII, uh, and in, even with the most conservative justice on the court at the time, Antonin Scalia broadening the definition, why, isn't the, why aren't the cases before the court now a slam dunk? for uh, an interpretation favoring the LGBT community. Right, right. Well, um, I think it kind of gets back to, um, to, to what you're saying, um, that um, you're hearing the attorneys for the sides saying that these classifications should not be covered um, kind of saying, you know, look, in, in, in 1964, there was never any intention to cover folks uh, based on their sexual orientation. And in fact, at that time, in many, many states, you know, it was a crime uh, to, uh, you know, perform, uh, say, acts of sodomy or acts that, you know, that gay persons, you know, would perform. And so they would say, really, at that time, it was kind of even illegal. And so uh, Congress never ever intended to cover uh, anyone based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. And in fact, if anyone is to make such a change, make such a pronouncement, that needs to come from Congress itself because it's just too difficult, um, you know, a, a, I guess, an expansion, right? Right. Um, the other is just, you know, I think particularly in, when you listen to the argument regarding the transgender um, defendant, that it's it's prob it's just a kind of um, I don't want to say disbelief, but almost a um, a denial and just a a um, kind of a, a statement maybe from uh, the attorney that you cannot change. They keep saying you can't change your sex, so not a not a recognition that medically persons could have been assigned the improper gender at birth, and so this is a uh, it's a, it's a, certainly a, a medical kind of condition, a, a medical procedure, a medical undertaking that that, that that results in a person finally being able to live their life as the gender or sex they should have been assigned, they should have had all of their life. But, and so but, I think, but the argument was that no biology trumps uh, personal desire uh, to be another sex. Uh, using sort of their terminology, and that mm-hmm. uh, it, once you're assigned a, a gender at birth, that's it. Uh, you you can act like somebody else, or you can uh, role play as somebody else, but you can't be covered by the law. That's that's the argument. You're right. The argument is that you know our creator our creator fixes our gender and that's what it is at birth and that, you know, man cannot mess with that. And uh, it, it kind of ignores the fact that, first of all, some, a lot of persons are born uh, intersex. You know, they're born, you know, without a, without a clear sex or gender when they're born. Um, it also ignores this argument. It also just ignores the, I think, the sexual stereotyping argument, which, um, you know, the, the, one of the cases really got into how the transgender woman 
uh, presented herself uh, at the funeral home um, and uh, because she was presenting as the woman that she was rather than the biological, rather than the man who was assigned a male identity at birth, which was the person that they had hired. So, so the sexual stereotyping really gets into that transgender argument as well. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So we have a new court now, uh, and if we look back at the same-sex marriage case, which is not that far back, 2015, the pivotal vote on that case, and in fact, the author of the opinion, if I'm not mistaken— was Justice Anthony Kennedy. He is no longer on the court. His position is taken over by by Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, what happens now, just with the different makeup of the court, and how much of a concern is that uh, in determining the outcome? That's a great question, uh, and it's one that you know, the, the whole community has been kind of <laughs> concerned about and wondering about. Um, so, so I have a couple of points to make about that. I think, you know, one is that, as you said, so Justice Kennedy, Justice Anthony Kennedy, actually authored the last, the last several Supreme Court cases uh, that were affirming uh, rights for uh, gays and lesbians. You know, they, he was an author of, we had the, um, the Romer case, uh, then we, that was a Colorado non-discrimination case. Um, we had Lawrence v. Texas, uh, which, you know, overturned uh, the ban on sodomy in Texas and basically said two um, consenting adults in private can perform whatever sexual acts they want to perform. Uh, then after that, 10 years later, we had Windsor, which he authored, which basically said um, it was uh, unconstitutional for the federal government to deny same-sex couples the right to marriage. And so then two years later, we had Obergefell, where Justice Kennedy said, and it's unconstitutional for the states to deny same-sex couples the right to marry. So 
we have this legacy um, of Justice Kennedy writing these opinions. Justice Kennedy, a, a Republican, uh, if you will, um, moderate at least on this, on these, um, on these matters, um, writing the opinions. And so his his replacement, of course, is Neil Gorsuch. And then since then, we also have um, you know uh, Justice Kavanaugh on the court. So the court has shifted quite a bit. Um, frankly, it's it's kind of a kind of a uh, scary court for those kind of watching these types of cases. But my observations after listening to this the arguments, at least for this particular employment discrimination case, um, it almost so, so if we have Kavanaugh replacing Scalia, we're not really not that's like really not losing um, anything. Well, really, it was it was it was it was Gorsuch who replaced Scalia. Kavanaugh replaced yes. Kent Kennedy. Exactly. I'm sorry. It was yeah. I had a flip. You're right. You're right. I should have remembered. It was it was uh, Gorsuch, not Garland. Right. Right. So 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 Gorsuch was on before before Kavanaugh. Right. So we um, I think that folks are thinking that um, you know if there's anyone that could swing in the middle, swing a little more to the middle, at least on these matters, that it's either going to be Gorsuch or my dark horse candidate actually is the Chief Justice. Um, Chief, Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, you know, much like we've seen in, in at least, at least I, I know the health insurance case I can think of, and maybe there's one or two others. Um, you know, as the court makeup shifts over the years, you see the people who are on it kind of move in conjunction with the others that are on the court. I kind of feel like, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is perhaps one that might swing a little more toward the middle on this. But if you read, if you read the arguments of the case, um, you also can get a sense that perhaps Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch is struggling with this. Um, and he, he in as much says so, really. Um, and I think it's important, again, to remember that these are two different decisions. You know, one decision is whether Title VII covers gays and lesbians. The second one is whether Title VII covers transgender folks. And one thing I found really interesting during the arguments was that in the first argument, it seemed like justices were asking questions that related more to the second argument. For example, the first argument, they kept worrying about bathrooms and the locker rooms and training rooms and things like that, those are the kind of concerns that you see uh, folks on the other side raise with regard to folks who are transgender. So I think that there was also a little intermixing of, of questions between the two cases. Um, but, but, but to your point, um, Justice Gorsuch um, speaks up quite a bit in both cases. And in fact, in the second case, which I think he's, he's, he's asking this in the context of the transgender employee. Justice Gorsuch says, you know, uh, I'm going to, when a case is really, really close, really close on the textual evidence, uh, let's just say I'm with you on the textual evidence. Uh, we're talking about the text, it's close, but should the judge take into consideration the massive social upheaval that would be entailed in such a decision and the possibility that the Congress didn't think about it. And, and so, so it's interesting. I, I think Justice Gorsuch is, is probably having a little trouble just reconciling his normal kind of ju- judicial philosophy with the fact that if you're following the text in terms of gender such that 
transgender folks will be covered, he's trying to consider the social policies, and that's not what Justice Gorsuch normally does. But well, if you, I think he's the one that is is he and or Justice Roberts are the two that 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 could swing and 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 pick up for Justice Kennedy at least in this case. If you look at Justice Chief Justice Roberts, he. Um, he is really one who likes to stick with precedent and keeps precedent in the forefront of his judicial decision-making. And certainly a, a ruling against inclusion in Title VII would really be going against the uh, trend of precedent, if not exact precedent in this case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, a, um, that's, a, that's a good observation and even kind of in line with what you said from Windsor to Obergefell which he voted against both of those um, his his dissent in Obergefell was 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 softer uh, softer than his dissent in Windsor right it's kind of like right. once the court does kind of a shift then do you just keep attacking it and attacking it or do you kind of soften to it a little bit and certainly he could see on the horizon other cases that would be coming after Obergefell, like this case and, you know, like some of the other public accommodation cases that we know are coming. Let so, me, uh, and, and this is his court. I mean, he, he, this is the Roberts court, and perhaps he's looking into the future, and, and, and I'm sure he is from since before he became a justice. You know, how, how, what does he want constitutional law students to say about his court 50 years from now, 100 years from now? I want you to break down, if you can, for our audience, what this decision means, or these decisions mean, as it relates to public accommodation. I know that mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about civil rights in employment, but there's also this public accommodation. And give us a, a lay definition of what that means and how these two may be interrelated. Sure, yeah. So um, I think we've all heard a lot the last several years about what they kind of called the cake cases. Okay. And so this was actually uh, a public accommodation case that went to the Supreme Court, um, which they really didn't didn't rule on. And, and I kind of argue that they want to hear these cases before they decide that case. Public accommodation really rests on this idea that if you're going to operate a business and it's open to the public, that um, depending on, you know, many, many states have these same laws, right, that you can't discriminate against your customers based on a a variety of of attributes. Um, Certainly, we saw in the, before the Civil Rights Act, that in the 1950s, uh, proprietors could say, I'm not, I don't serve African-Americans in my restaurant. Get out of here. Or I don't serve African, African-Americans can't rent a hotel room in my hotel. Get out of here. You know, after the 1964, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that blatant type of discrimination can no longer happen. And so, um, however, there is, there is no such nationwide law that covers public accommodations as it, um, as it applies to persons based on being gay or lesbian or transgender. So, again, we have many states that have their own statewide laws, but about half of the states do not have public accommodation laws. And so that means that, you know, if you go into a business um, and you say, 
um, I'm, I'm engaged. Here's my fiance. And let's say you happen to be two women and you say, uh, I'd like you to create a ring or some rings for us that we can exchange you know, during our wedding. That the argument is in many um, states that um, that that is uh, you're, that you're allowed that the proprietor of that business is allowed to say, I'm sorry, um, I don't want, I can't give you, you can't, you can't be a customer aligned, you can't uh, receive our services. Um, and the reason that they give is because uh, it's based on their strongly held religious belief. And so I guess I would submit that this has really, ever since we now have marriage equality across the United States, that, that now we're seeing more and more of these arguments made by proprietors in these states. Well, if they're in a state where there's no public accommodation law covering gay people, they're fine anyway. But if they're in a state even where there is an anti-discrimination public accommodation law that says, hey, you can't discriminate against someone based on their sexual orientation. What we're seeing from these proprietors are, yes, I can based on my strongly held religious belief. And so, um, we, and, and that's the clash. That's the clash between this anti-discrimination law that says you can't discriminate against me because uh, you're a place of public accommodation. And then we see the proprietors say, no, this goes against my firmly held religious belief. And that position, that conflict, you're saying will be most likely resolved by the court, but after they deal with this Title VII matter, not before. Yeah. They've rejected yeah. it before, but they know it's coming again. So they're saying, well, let's get this Title VII thing out of the way before we address the public accommodation part. Yeah, this is, so this is an observation that I have made. Uh, so it's just the Lydia Lavelle observation. <laughs> but, um, but really, it's, it's that they had an opportunity when Justice Kennedy was on the court to, to, to deal with the religious, the public accommodation slash religious freedom argument uh, in what was called the Masterpiece um, Bake Shop case where, a, where a, uh, a proprietor refused to make a, a wedding cake for a, a same-sex couple. And they, they really ended up just punting on that decision. They, they, they confined it solely to its facts, and so it has no precedent. And uh, Justice Kennedy, so this was like his last case, and I, I actually did a little presentation on this. It was his swan song kind of to the LGBTQ community. And he kind of basically chastised everyone, everyone on all sides, and said, look, these are not easy questions. Um, everyone needs to treat everyone with respect. Um, you know, everyone has valid positions as we work through all of this. Uh, good luck. I'm out of here, you know. And so there was another case. It was the Klein case, um, which the court accepted um, uh, on certiari, which means they were going to consider it and argue it, you know, calendar right. it, argue it. So the, all spring, people were watching to see, well, when is that going to be heard? When is that going to be heard? Well, what the court did was instead it scheduled these Title VII cases and sent back that Klein case back to the Court of Appeals and said, reconsider this in light of Masterpiece, which really didn't say anything. So it, I, it's my argument that they purposely decided they wanted to hear these Title VII cases and decide on them before they addressed what's perhaps the more difficult public accommodation cases. One last question, Lydia, and that is if these rulings go against the LGBT community, how 
important is that? How important are these decisions to the civil rights of the LGBT community? Mm. Well, um, it would be a tremendous setback. And it, it, I'll tell you, it would really go against, um, I think, the spirit of the act. Um, it, it would go against their own precedent. And, and frankly, with, with same-sex, with, with marriage equality, um, the percentage of folks across the nation that were in favor of marriage equality, it, 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 it wasn't that great yet. But in the years since marriage equality, study after study kind of shows people are, are, are used to it, people are accepting it. You know, it's, it's kind of helped pull along public belief on, on same-sex marriage. Employment discrimination, right now, studies show that 75, 80% of people think employment discrimination is wrong based on, you know, uh, sexual orientation, based on gender, based on sexual stereotyping. So, so really, the court would not be, would not be ruling against uh, the general sentiment of the country. I, I think it would be, um, it, it definitely would be a step back. Um, and, and just one final note I'll make, there are some who, um, who, who suggest that perhaps they might rule one way, say, as to gays and lesbians, and another way as to the transgender community. And I'm not sure how they could slice that um, so, so easily. I guess if they're going strictly by the words, they could find that uh, persons who are transgender are covered under the act currently and that persons who are gay and lesbian are not. So um, it'll be fascinating to see however they um, turn on this. Um, it, it, you know, Congress has tried to, to pass similar legislation for years um, under the, you know, um, a non-discrimination act um, and hasn't been able to. Um, and depending on what happens, as you indicated, it'll set up, you know, implications for how they rule on public accommodation down the line. Well, Lydia, thank you so much for your expertise, and uh, we'll keep in touch as this goes through the court system. Obviously, there will be a decision before the end of June, which will be the end of the term. Uh, perhaps this will be one of the earlier decisions. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I've heard people say anywhere from March to June it could come out. Today, we've been talking with Lydia Lavelle, a North Carolina mayor and law professor, about the two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court concerning whether current civil rights laws protect employment discrimination based upon sexual orientation and transgender status. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments, about our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.